trade with the Asia-Pacific region is flourishing. Official figures show the fast-growing region accounted for three-quarters of New Zealand's $136 billion in two-way trade. That's expected to get a further boost with the signing of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and greater access to the lucrative markets of the United States and Japan. But is New Zealand's long and established relationship with Europe in danger of being neglected as firms chase opportunities closer to home? Firms say Asia can't be ignored. You can't walk away from the fact that we have more comprehensive free trade agreements in place with most places in Asia. That makes the barriers to entry a lot lower and there's been that rising emerging middle class that want to consume dairy. So you have to take it to go after that opportunity. But trade experts point out Europe still packs a powerful punch. It's an important market because it's developed over a period of time off a historical base. It's our third largest export market. It's rich. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Even though there are diverse societies there, uh, when you look at the globe, the EU is a massive trading entity and it's got very, very rich consumers and it has a major industrial and services base. I'm Patrick O'Mara and this insight examines New Zealand's trade relationship with Europe. Kính thưa ngài Jockey, Thủ tướng New Zealand, kính thưa các vị khách quý. The Prime Minister John Key is officially welcomed to Vietnam late last year. Mr Key led a business delegation to the fast-growing Asian nation, where a number of agreements were signed to cement closer trade ties between the two countries. He set out why. This is a you know, fast-growing economy, so it's about one notch above us in terms of its overall economy at the moment, but it's growing at around about 6.5% a year. 90-odd million people live here, and the average age of them are 24. So you can imagine what uh, Vietnam is going to look like in terms of its purchasing power in a sort of decade or so from now. It's going to become much wealthier, bigger consumer of the sort of products and services that New Zealand produces. And Vietnam is not the only market in the Asia-Pacific region that's on New Zealand's radar. Over the last decade and a half, New Zealand's trade focus has squarely been on this region, culminating in the 12-nation Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, kia ora tato, uh, ministers, members of the diplomatic corps, uh, Mayor Len Brown, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to welcome you here to Auckland, New Zealand, for the signing of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. I hope James Crisp is the Executive Vice President of Asia, Middle East and Africa of baggage handler provider BCS Group. Mr Crisp agrees Asia is close, getting richer and wanting more of the types of goods and services this country provides. Our traditional markets of, um, of Europe and, and America are a lot further away and um, I think that uh, New Zealand um, can service the Asian market a lot easier and there is the, the amount of growth here is, is, is astounding, the, the amount of opportunities here is uh, if, if you're prepared to do the hard yards I think that you can be very successful up here. The firms in New Zealand, they have an advantage? I think they do because um, uh, New Zealand is um, it has got a good name in the, in, in the, uh, in the region. Um, once you're identified as a New Zealander, um, people are very, very happy to, to, to talk to you as long as they don't think you're an American. It's, it's quite a change. Vietnam highlights the growth in the region. In aviation, Vietnam's passenger growth is the third fastest growing in the world, behind China and UAE. 
Mr Crisp says the country is crying out for pilots, air traffic controllers and better airport systems, which New Zealand firms are well placed to provide. Education is another. Victoria University has had a long-term relationship with Vietnam. It has a campus based at the University of Economics in Ho Chi Minh City, and through a joint program, Vietnamese students do English language study while beginning a Victoria University Bachelor of Commerce degree. Students do up to half their degree there before transferring to Wellington to finish it. Its Vice-Chancellor, Grant Guilford, says Asia is a key market. That's the focus very firmly for Victoria and for most of our universities. That's the area of the world that sustains New Zealand. Uh, it's where our partners and partnerships are. Our, most of our trading relations are there. So that's very firmly our focus. Do I take it then that if uh, those uh, barriers that are there to developing that relationship, those are that's a critical part of it for you? Yes, it is. So um, uh, every time uh, the government works to open a market, uh, we have a good look at that. Um, we don't want to be spread too thin. It's a big old um, wide world out there. But there's been some very interesting moves into Latin America as well by the New Zealand government supporting uh, education there, and that's uh, quite exciting. Each of these markets um, have um, a product life cycle. So uh, um, some um, are very mature and uh, a lot of in-country teaching goes on from foreign universities that offer full suites in English in-country. And then there you get markets like uh, Vietnam, which are just beginning their economic journey, and they need to send a lot of students out. Um, they, they like to work with universities that show a commitment to their country, though, by having a physical presence here. In Vietnam, the signing of agreements to foster greater aviation and education ties dominated the business agenda. The Economic Development Minister, Stephen Joyce, says these will help cement the relationship between the two countries and will help meet the target of doubling two-way trade to more than $2 billion a year by 2020. Well, I think the main thing for firms coming into Vietnam is that the relationship is getting stronger and stronger. And the Vietnamese government, a little bit like the Chinese government, has quite an influence of the, on the economy here. And uh, so they are very supportive and encouraging of New Zealand expertise and New Zealand uh, uh, knowledge and services coming in uh, to here. So New Zealand companies will get a good welcome. They'll still have to do the work. And like all these things, it's about relationships. But it's well worth doing. 90 million people, average age of 24. I mean, this is a strong future market for New Zealand and uh, we, are, we are welcome here and, uh, and frankly we have a very good and friendly relationship. The deepening push into Asia reflects the shock New Zealand experienced when Britain joined the European Union in the 1970s. The Professor of International Trade at Lincoln University, Crawford Faulkner, says New Zealand hung grimly onto Britain's coattails in Europe while trying to desperately build new trade relationships. We were actually quite dependent, very dependent in fact, particularly on the UK market. So when the UK went into what was then the common market, so-called, uh, now the EU, that was a very big change for us, a huge change. Uh, we, we weren't a diversified economy in those days. And there was a historical connection there. And it took a long time, frankly, before we diversified away from that. It was a big change and we had transitional arrangements that enabled our basic agricultural products to still have a market despite what would normally have been a complete exclusion for us. And that was negotiated uh, with the EC and the UK 
and it was known as Protocol 18. I mean, it sounds like a Dan Brown novel, um, and I think it probably was harder to write than anything Dan Brown ever wrote. And it made people joke at the time, uh, insiders in the, in the EC, used to refer to New Zealand, I think, as the 12th member state, simply because of the degree to which negotiation had occurred over that. So it was very important for that reason. Times have changed. All 15 free trade deals signed by New Zealand since 2000 have been with nations in the Asia-Pacific region, including the world's second largest economy, China. If TPP is successfully ratified, exporters can look forward to greater and simpler access to the world's first and third biggest economies, the United States and Japan. So, with exporters' trade cards seemingly full with potential in the Asia-Pacific region, does it relegate Europe to the sidelines? Not for the electric fence maker TrueTest. Its managing director, Greg Muir, says it's a mature market that pays top dollar for quality. Europe's a really important market, partly because it's a mature market. So when you contrast that with, say, Latin America or Asia, uh, farming systems are still quite immature in those markets, whereas Europe's mature. Uh, they largely use similar farming systems to us. Um, whilst they have much harsher winters, uh, they have a grass-based farming system, and a lot of our technology is created to work optimally in grass-based environments. And so in that sense, uh, lots of Europe is very similar to us, particularly Ireland and the UK, um, but even through France and Germany. The European Union encompasses 28 nations, holds 500 million people and its economy is worth more than 20 trillion US dollars. Mr Muir says firms ignore Europe at their peril. Europe doesn't seem to have the sort of um, location de jour that Asia has, has these days, which you know for us um, has never made sense, so it's never lost its attraction for us. Um, you can see why some companies are attracted to Asia. It's closer, um, you're a one-stop flight away, um, there's a big population. But that doesn't suit us, you know. So I think it's I think it's horses for courses, and and certainly our our view is, um, you know, you ignore Europe um, at your peril. You're leaving good markets um, with with mature egg systems and a great ability to pay and pay premiums for good quality product. You're leaving that to one side if you if you're not really focused on the opportunities in Europe. And I kind of look at Europe a little bit like the US. I mean, I think New Zealanders tend to. Uh, underappreciate the opportunity in the US. You know, it's 300 million people, um, massive consumer society. You know, inside or outside of ag, there's just a lot going on in Europe, um, similar to the way that it is in the US. Big populations, you know, plenty of um, uh, consumer discretionary income, sophisticated infrastructure through um, IT and, and uh, software systems, and so Europe to us looks to be a, a good opportunity for decades to come. New Zealand's two-way trade with the European Union is not to be sniffed at either, with $20.5 billion in 2015. That makes the EU New Zealand's third biggest trading partner, behind only Australia and China. And the attraction of Europe certainly doesn't appear to have lost its appeal. And over the course of the five years I was in, in Hamburg, um, we developed those relationships with the companies that were... A director at New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, Marcus Scalurge, says a broad range of firms are interested in developing ties with the region, ranging from food and beverage to medical devices and health IT to clothing companies like Icebreaker.
we see that growth in other parts of the world has probably increased more than it has into Europe. But um, our, the interest in Europe has definitely not um, declined. Um, we've probably got more companies now working with us than we did five years ago. Um, but probably proportionally the growth hasn't been as high as it maybe has been other markets, which means that some people think that, the, um, that Europe is, is going backwards, which is not the case. Europe is also New Zealand's second largest source of investment in New Zealand companies from overseas. Lincoln University's Crawford Faulkner says it's more than just money. He says that provides access to markets that New Zealand firms wouldn't necessarily get on their own. That's how, how it operates. Uh, there's a massive association between foreign direct investment and trade these days, um, and, and indeed productivity. And certainly Europe has historically been a major source of our investment. Uh, Australia has been very, very big as well. And that, that linkage gets you... It's not just a case of somebody dumping a bunch of money. Um, it means that they are investing all of their know-how, linkages, communications, design, etc., with you, and you're part of that, that system. And, and by and large, agriculture is a bit different from that, it's very difficult now to trade significantly unless you're part of those networks. So it's not like investment is something over and apart from trade. It's absolutely essential to it. It's, it's how trade happens these days. The model has completely changed in the last 15, 20 years. But there's no doubt that Asia's emergence as a profitable region to do business has firms looking at Europe differently. Silverfern Farms processes 30% of the country's beef, lamb and venison and its farmer owners are currently considering a capital injection from China's Shanghai Meiling. Europe accounts for a fifth of total revenue, led by selling lamb to Britain and venison to Germany. Its chief executive, Dean Hamilton, says stronger demand from China for lamb offset falling consumption in Britain since the global financial crisis. He says the company is exploring ways to develop high-end products that appeal to well-heeled European customers. We ultimately looking to maximise the returns for red meat uh, globally. So you know we are always looking at market opportunities and where the optimal place to put that is. We're in the middle uh, of launching uh, high-end aged frozen retail. Uh, lamb and venison into Germany's largest retailer. Uh, that launch occurs this week. It's been 12 months in the planning. And so you know, that, that we, we view that as an exciting opportunity uh, and one which has taken priority over other markets. And so you know, when the partnership with Shanghai Mailing is consummated, yes, we'll be looking at similar you know, aged frozen product into their retail channels. But it, it, at the end of the day, it has to stack up. You know, where is the best place that we can put this product so that you know, we can add the most value and, and ultimately return those uh, you know, and higher prices at the farm gate? So you know, we, aren't, we aren't myopic in terms of when it comes to, uh, to markets. Fonterra is selling lower volumes of milk, butter and cheese to Europe, which it puts down partly to trade barriers. But its managing director of global ingredients, Kelvin Wickham, says Europe's essential to their growth plans. From a Fonterra perspective, we are not. <laughs> I think our business there over the last 10 years, despite the rapid growth of China and the wider Asia, we've continued to uh, sell uh, the volumes into the EU and the relationship has been strengthened by those investments for product coming out and uh, in the two-way trade. So not distracted at all. 
Um, but you can't you can't walk away from the fact that we have more comprehensive free trade agreements in place with most places in Asia. That makes the barriers to entry a lot lower, and there's been that rising emerging middle class that want to consume dairy. So you have to take go after that opportunity. Kelvin Wickham points out Europe is more than just about selling stuff for Fonterra. Mr Wickham says the value of its European business has risen, driven by two-way trade and investment partnerships with European rivals. Yeah, that two-way trade has increased over the last 10 years. So, you know, we've got $2 out, $1 back. But we're either, um, uh, we tend to use the ingredients from the EU, add further value to it, such as refining lactose or adding it into um, formulated products for re-export back out to uh, other markets around the world. This is this global supply chain play that, that we talk about a lot these days. Yeah, that is correct. I mean, we see the EU as a real key part to that multi-hub strategy. In other words, sourcing milk and dairy ingredients from multiple locations in the world where it's best placed to source it to match the, the global growth that we see. Um, sometimes to you know to help around um, the trade barriers that may be in place, but more often than not to de-risk supply for our global customers. Now, you also said too that there's co-investment going on. So what does that mean? Yeah, that's a really interesting change that's happened in the last 10 years in the EU. Our level of investment has increased. So to give you an example, today we have partnerships with Dairy Crest and First Milk in the UK, uh, Rakiskio in Lithuania, and that's for sourcing uh, specialised whey protein products to sell domestically inside the EU and also to support our global customers. We have a joint venture with uh, Royal Frisian Campina. That's a pharmaceutical excipient joint venture. In fact, it's the leading pharmaceutical lactose company in the world, which has plants in Germany, Netherlands and New Zealand. And we also have a, a wholly owned um, uh, whey protein concentrate plant in the Netherlands, again, to support um, sales inside the EU and our global customers complementing the New Zealand supply. The International Business Forum, Stephen Jacoby, says firms are increasingly doing business differently. And this can play into New Zealand's hands when dealing with Europe. What's in it for them is the access that we have into markets in Asia that they don't have. And uh, that's something they can access by partnering, investing, doing strategic alliances of different types. It's not our own market, clearly. They don't, they don't need to come here, though, do they? They could go to other nations. Yes, but we do have now, through our FTAs, that we have uh, negotiated with China, with ASEAN, and now through TPP, we have an interesting point of entry. And, of course, we have resources that they would like to be able to make um, use of. So, I mean, that's the, that's the value proposition, and we'll have to see if that stands up in Brussels. That certainly attracted Germany's Bayvar to take a controlling stake in the produce grower and exporter TNG Global, formerly known as Turners and Growers. Hello. Are you Patrick? Yes, Hello. I'm Harold. Hey, Patrick, nice to meet you. You too. Just... Its Chief Financial Officer, Harold Hamster, says Turners and Growers gave it a vital link between Asia and Bayvar's established markets in the US and Europe. He says TNG gives it access to produce all around the world, allowing it to satisfy fickle but powerful customers such as British supermarkets. The most demanding ones are the UK retailers. They wouldn't accept us not being able to provide a chairs apple any day of the year. So they're just so used to have chairs for their customers every day, and we've achieved that. So, so that's exactly why when we, when we go back to why Biva bought into a Southern Hemisphere company, that's exactly the idea that you have those products available every day around the year. Different sourcing regions, consumers understand that an apple from New Zealand tastes better than 
NZTE's Marcus Scalurge says European firms are keen to find out more about New Zealand and the opportunities here and in the region. Part of NZTE is obviously looking at inward investment um, and, and uh, where we can uh, help European companies um, explore the opportunities into New Zealand, we try and help them as well. Uh, and we've got an example which uh, um, is coming from France just next month where we have uh, a group of about 30 French companies coming to New Zealand for the first time in 20 or so years that we've had such a large delegation of companies coming down. And they are interested not only in finding business partners but also potentially looking at investment opportunities here as well. So we work closely with them to, to work out what the best opportunities would be. What's the attraction of New Zealand to them? Is it just the market to sell into, or do they see that New Zealand as a gateway to that wider Asia region? Well, I think New Zealand, on the world scale, is a very small market. So with 4.5 million people, we know that, firstly, we can't um, just get rich by selling to ourselves, so we have to work with partners. Um, and at the same time, international companies don't necessarily come to New Zealand because they see this is the, it's going to solve, solve all their problems. But um, it is a, New Zealand is a trusted market, it's a safe market, it's a, it's a low-risk market in many respects, it's a good foothold into this part of the world. Uh, we've got an example in Germany of a company called DEFRA which bought uh, vehicle testing in New Zealand uh, about two years ago, uh, and that was their first foray into the Pacific. They chose New Zealand because of its, um, of its safe environment, if you like, a good way to get started. But they saw it as an opportunity then to look, OK, what's Australia going to offer us, what are other parts of Asia going to offer us? Um, our FDA with China, for example, can also be used as an advantage there because we understand how things could work in, into that part of the world. So European companies will be looking at opportunities to partner uh, into New Zealand as well. But all sides say more can be done to foster the relationship. The European Union is to consider a free trade deal with New Zealand. The Prime Minister, John Key, has met with the presidents of the European Commission and European Council at the Nuclear Security Summit in The Hague. Mr. Key says having the Trade Minister, Todd McClay, met his counterpart, the EU Trade Commissioner, Cecilia Malmström, in Brussels last month to look at progress on the work that's being done in the lead-up to the start of talks. Mr. McClay hopes permission to start formal talks will be given early next year. He says the relationship hasn't been neglected, despite New Zealand's focus on China and TPP. We need to be a little bit uh, cautious. It would seem that uh, all of the focus is on Asia, in particular China, because there's been a lot of talk uh, there. And I suppose the reason for this is uh, that with the China FTA, over five or six years, we've gone from about $4 billion worth of trade to $20 billion worth of trade. So that's a significant increase in a relatively short period of time. We have $20 billion worth of two-way trade with the European Union countries already. And it's been there for quite some time. This is a, you know, these are traditional markets. So it's probably easy for us to think that Asia has become larger and more important. The EU remains an extremely important market to us. And the feedback I get from business and industry in New Zealand is it's the last part of the world where we don't have a formalised trading agreement or, or relationship, and that now is the time for us to go and do that. The International Business Forum, Stephen Jacoby, says the TPP negotiations are likely to provide the framework for talks with the Europeans. TPP sets out a kind of a level or, or, or a level of the playing field, if you like, that Europe will know what um, our policies are. I'm not sure it's a lot different, though, than what we had done in other FTAs before. Our record on these things is fairly, fairly clear, and we're always looking to get the highest possible outcome, the most ambitious, the highest quality, the most comprehensive. In this age of global value chains and networks, 
this is the way that economies can integrate and become successful. And like the TPP, greater access for agricultural goods will be contentious. Fonterra's Calvin Wickham says the deal struck for dairy under the TPP isn't good enough. And despite Europe's staunchly protectionist farming lobby, he'll be looking for something much better. We would hope so. I mean, clearly we were quite disappointed with the outcome at TPP. We felt that a much greater, more comprehensive agreement could be reached, if, particularly if the US pushed harder on some of the more closed markets. So we would definitely be looking for a better outcome uh, with the EU. New Zealand is also shut out of the lucrative beef market. And Silverfern Farms' Dean Hamilton says that needs to change. For Silverfern Farms and, and for the New Zealand red meat industry, opening up the beef opportunity uh, is the real, uh, I think, highlight for us if that can be achieved. You know, that, that's a market that New Zealand really doesn't have access to. And if we look about how our, our beef is positioned in other markets in the world, uh, you know, our chilled beef certainly is at the high end. Uh, it's an attractive product that is is in good demand. Could we uh, gain increased sales by having access to Europe? D definitely. Um, would that create more value for New Zealand? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, that would be a tremendous outcome if you know if collectively New Zealand can gain access to that market. Lincoln University's Crawford Faulkner says European drug companies will also aggressively state their case for longer patent protection periods and changes to Pharmac that could make drugs more expensive. I would think that the European pharmaceutical industries uh, will have a very similar view of the New Zealand pharmaceuticals market as the US pharmaceutical industries did with TPP. Uh, we appear to have seen off that particular approach from the US pharmaceutical industries. You'll see, um, I would imagine, uh, another round of that with the Europeans because the way in which we operate, other kinds of terms that we have are longer than generally what they have. So I think you'll have a, I think I'd be very surprised if you didn't have a, a, a bit of a difference on that, which will have to be negotiated. But TPP critics are sounding a warning. The economist at the Council of Trade Unions, Bill Rosenberg, wants a more inclusive approach this time round, saying the government cannot continue to ignore civic society as it did over the TPP. Dr Rosenberg says the EU Ombudsman has urged a more open process and New Zealand should embrace that. Well look I think we can do a lot better than it was done in the China FDA talks. That was good in comparison to the grocer regime which was basically trust me I know what I'm doing. I would hope that Todd McClay has learnt something from that because whether the government rams through the TPPA or not what the outcry about both the process and the content of the TPPA has shown is that they will meet increasing resistance from New Zealanders to these kinds of agreements, particularly if they don't open up the process and they don't listen to people's very real concerns. Dr Rosenberg says a free trade deal with the European Union has the potential to be a better agreement particularly if Labour works in partnership with business and government to boost growth in wages. While stronger trade and investment ties with Europe are likely at some stage, commentators are loath to put a time on when an agreement may be struck. Certainly, the region will remain an important trading partner. Nevertheless, New Zealand can afford to wait, 
with the Asia-Pacific region set to burn brightly for some time yet. I'm Patrick O'Mara, and that's Insight for this week. If you have any thoughts, you can contact us on email at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is InsightRNZ. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Philippa Tolley and Teresa Cowie with technical production by William Saunders.